Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you again for another time this summer. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Ethan, or if you're new here. And uh, it's my assurance to you, um, given our topic of friendship today, that uh, this is a good place to make good friends. Um, I grew up here, and uh, so it's always a blessing to speak with you. Uh, let's get started this morning with just a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. God, our Father, we ask you that your Holy Spirit be with us this morning, our helper and counselor. May we, as your word says, not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. May you guide my words and open our hearts and give us a view of how we can be a better friend to those in our life. Amen. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. In my preparation for our sermon today, it's this proverb alone that I guess gave me the most alarming sense of significance. The stakes are high. It warns us that we will not make it in life if we fail to make and maintain friendships with wise people. Again, these are really high stakes. And this goes for everyone, from the the student in high school or going off to college, from the woman starting a new career, to the man in retirement, wise friends make the difference. Last weekend, I had the chance to actually go backpacking in Idaho. Yeah, as it turns out, there's actually more in Idaho than just potatoes. They, They have good mountains, tall mountains. And uh, one of the things that I got to do was actually share this hike with some good friends. And as someone in ministry, knowing that he had a sermon on friendship coming up, I was really excited because I was hiking with some friends from actually my time in the youth group, uh, one of which was in my wedding as one of my groomsmen. Uh, These were some of my closest friends that I get to share with. And so I did what any person in ministry would do and say, God, with the weekend ahead, Um, may you just give me a really good sermon illustration out of this. Be careful what you pray for. Uh, About seven or, yeah, about seven miles into the hike, one of the shoes, uh, one of the soles on my shoes fell off, just completely lost a whole hiking boot, sturdy boot shoe right there on the trail. So I had some rope and some duct cord, uh, duct tape, and tried to, to mend it together. Didn't work. And then I thought, no, no worries, no worries. I'm a wise packer. I, I packed extra things, and I have water-crossing sandals, and surely this will make the difference here. Uh, so I strapped on my water-crossing sandals and hit the trail, which really only lasted another measly quarter mile. And then those shoes, too, fell apart. So there I was on the trail with no shoes that could work. And we had another... 15, 20 miles ahead of us, we were stuck. So right then and there, I prayed, Lord, I I didn't need this kind of sermon illustration. So what we had, though, on us was other wise friends who also packed their sandals. And so one of my friends gave me his $30 knockoff, two sizes too big water shoes. And so I slipped those on, not a great fit, put a few more socks on, uh, and good enough, I guess. Um, it wasn't comfortable. And as we neared this corner right there was this 3,000-foot waterfall that we had to climb over. 
And I thought, oh, Lord, <laughs> this is going to need some good help here. Um, my feet, I don't know if they can make it. But they did. And guess what? I did the whole 25-mile hike with not a single blister. Feet were still very sore and still are a little bit. But it wasn't comfortable. But what I did have was the encouragement of my friends the whole way through. We still had an amazing time, memories that I probably won't forget for the rest of my life. And I also got a sermon illustration that I now know better to ask for. Wise friends make the difference, and especially when you're on the trail of life together. I want to invite each of us this morning to think about who is on the trail of life with me right now. Who are my wise friends? Also, um, are you someone who, who, who goes into life thinking, I can make life on my own? I'm, I'm a lone wolf. Or maybe you're looking around thinking, taking inventory and thinking, I'm just a lonely wolf. Wherever you may be, I encourage you to listen to God's counsel today. And in addition, I want us to, each of us ask, what kind of friend am I? Can I do better? Am I someone who models the way of wisdom that Jesus models for the benefit of others in my life? Can I use my sermon illustration, help them find their footing? So let's keep these questions close today. Who are my friends? And also, what kind of friend am I? And also, as we learn from Proverbs today, I want us to keep two advantages in mind, advantages that we have as New Testament readers. This is, since the writing of Proverbs, the author of wisdom has come in the flesh. So first advantage, Jesus has perfectly modeled wisdom for us. And we can read Proverbs right next to the stories of his life. And second advantage, we have been granted access, exclusive access to a holy community of wisdom in the body of Christ. This is the church, this place. And this is the place where it is said that Jesus is the head of the body and also that we are the fruit, uh, the branches of the vine. Through abiding in Christ and witnessing his work in the Holy Spirit move in our day to day, we become wise with Jesus. We are transformed, as Romans says, in the renewing of our mind. So us Christians have a means to leave behind foolishness and unskillful living and its consequences and model wisdom for the world. But that's an if, and a big if, if we are willing to heed God's wisdom and maintain wise friendships. This, of course, we do not always do, as Proverbs reminds us. So with this established, I want to give you a brief roadmap of where we're going today. Our first point here, the Pro Proverbs calls us to be a friend and to be constant. Be constant. Also, be considerate, our second point. And third, to also be candid. So be constant, be considerate, and be candid. Starting with the first, be constant. In our day and age, we have fallen into the habit of devaluing friendships and minimizing both their worth and the time that they're owed. As a result, the whole church has suffered. And what else can we expect? If you don't feed something, it starves. One stat, uh, just looking at one segment of the church, this is young adults. In 2019, the Barna Research Group reports that 66% of young adults, both married and not, do not feel deeply cared for by someone in their life leaving only a third that can say as much. 
this number of lonely adults has continued to rise since then and will do so for the conceivable uh, the foreseeable future. Speaking to just this group of young adults, wherever you are right now, I know that you're familiar with the societal pressure to uh, find that special someone for life. And um, there's a number of unfortunate kind of cultural expectations that collides with you on your day to day. We pressure people, and we feel at least a pressure if we don't actively mean to do it, uh, to kind of minimize making friendships and maintaining friendships and find that person and marry them quick before you're 30. And if you're 40, there must be something wrong with you, or at least that's what you feel like. Um, And so you, without your 2.3 kids, then feel anxious at times, you feel lonely, and you feel desperate. And this is the way it is. And in some church bodies, it's the pressure's worse than others. Could it be that wise friends then really make the difference. Proverbs 17, 17 here suggests as much. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. At first glance, we can see that this tells us that a friend sticks closer than a brother. Blood, after all, does run pretty thick. But if we consider the strength of this statement in the ancient context, we'd actually realize that Uh, Even the way they viewed brothers and sisters was stronger than we do today in the modern world. They had arranged marriages. And so often it was the case that uh, uh, spouses were not as close as as family blood. And coupled with this, their ancient cultures a lot of times made it legal or legally mandated it that they help their family in whatever circumstances. If your cousin Bob was in trouble, then brother Bob needed to help Bob out. And so with that, a brother would be obligated. And this, this Proverbs, it goes on to explain here that a friend, though, is compelled to love, not just in times of crisis, but always, a constant. Uh, this elevates the meaning of a friend above that of already a strong brotherly tie. Proverbs eighteen twenty four also recommends this or um, echoes this thought, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. While a man of many companions may be popular, may have infinite resources at his disposal, uh, and he may have strong family ties, this still, says Proverbs, isn't compared to the worth of a close friend. Finding this type of close friend, though, is, is really difficult And it takes a lot of time. C.S. Lewis argues in his book, The Four Loves, that the love of friendship, as opposed to the love of a spouse or even the love of a child, um, that the love of friendship, it really isn't instinctual for human beings. It's not pre-programmed in our genes or in our biology. To continue to paraphrase him, uh, we're not hardwired for it. It doesn't make our heart race like the love of a spouse or whenever we're maybe trying to defend one of our own children. Um, Lewis says that it's entirely possible to live life without knowing the love of friendship. I would agree. And this is a sad reality that exists prevalent in the church today. And it's a result of not prioritizing friendship. I think this should give us pause. 
Do I have a core group of friends, friends that will always be there for me? Maybe just one or two, and that they would be there if I needed help, if I needed a ride to the airport, or if I needed someone to visit me in the hospital, that they would be there. Or or, or even perhaps someone who would uh, accept both your dinner invitation, but also your tears. That was our first question, who are my friends? And our second question is, what kind of friend am I? Well, how are you doing so far? Do people know that you would be there for them when they needed help? Would they say that your care for them knows no bounds, that you have their back, that you can confidently answer these questions with a yes is a beautiful thing, but that's not always the case for us. And different seasons of life tell different stories. But maybe, maybe in the near future, God plans to answer your loneliness with a friend. Or maybe for you to answer someone else's loneliness with friendship. So what kind of constant friends should we look for? This is where points two and three of our sermon, if you're following along in the notes, will help to be considerate and also be candid. Before we continue, though, I want to share with you that in my sermon prep, I almost combined points two and three together into just be kind. But kindness, though, has this unfortunate thing that's happened to it uh, in our culture. We confuse it for niceness, which the word nice is not actually in the Bible at all, at least any good translation. Nice is passive, where kindness is active. Nice concedes, gives way, doesn't want to rock the boat, uh, which is not always the wisest choice or the kindest choice. So looking ahead, I've divided kindness in half, consideration and candor, and I think we'll see why more in a moment. But this will compose the full scope of Christian friendship. So for point two, be considerate. Consideration of others is both an awareness and a response. It's a body of knowledge or data, but it's also an appropriate application of that data. Starting with the first, to be considerate, one must be aware of not only uh, others' needs, but how you come across self-awareness, awareness of others and self-awareness. Simple enough. And as Proverbs says here in 2520, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, like vinegar on soda. Here we have a person who's in the midst of some sort of grief, perhaps the loss of a loved one. And the author compares the notion of singing this to this person to try and just cheer them up. I don't know what song it would be, but it's comparable to stealing their clothes or pouring vinegar on soda, which would cause some sort of violent, bubbling chemical reaction and perhaps not even smell good. Now, I think there's always a good moment, maybe for a song, but not every time. And this is sort of the heart of the proverb. This person who's singing this is simply not self-aware of what they're doing. And this actually makes this friend a bad friend. Proverbs 25, 17, uh, this is uh, another one that illustrates self-awareness. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Wow. You hear a lot of laughter, and perhaps you know some names and faces with that. Uh, 
Yet again, we find a friend of, uh, with a lack of self-awareness. They've overstayed their welcome, and they're not a friend anymore, at least a beloved friend. <laughs> they're a friend that you hate. Moving on, and this is my favorite. Uh, it's pretty funny. I think those of you who are not mourning people will love this one, and I wouldn't be surprised to visit your homes at some point and see this hanging on the walls. Uh, Proverbs 27, 14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. I think some spouses are laughing harder than others. Uh, In order for us to become more self-aware, we must become better listeners. And listening is not only just to words, but also body language. But not only just words and body language, but also listening carefully with someone's life circumstances, where they're coming from and where they've been. The person who listens this way understands that a person comes from a context that vastly shapes their view of the world and even God. Take, for example, my friend Daniel, to use a different name. He came from a broken home. Whenever a pastor would refer to God as father, he'd cringe. He confessed to me once that he just hated that analogy. Why do we have to refer to God as, as a good father? Knowing a little bit more about his life as I befriended him, he had a terrible father. He didn't know what a father was, a good one at least. And on top of that, if I tried to correct his theology, it would just meet with this, this blunt force rejection. He was in process to understanding what a good father was. And over time and knowing him, he came to appreciate the term. Listening to others' life circumstances is crucial to being considerate. And It's key to whenever you find yourself in violent disagreement with someone else, be it their politics uh, or their health choices, their habits, or whatever else. You cannot win ground someone in conflict um, if you don't address where they're coming from. If whatever you say doesn't make sense with what they lived and what they know to be true and what they've read, then you have no luck and it's almost even just foolishness to even try. And the trouble is, taking time to listen to someone's context, it takes time. Mainstream media, it it won't give you a good point-for-point explanation of what your neighbor believes and uh, why they're wrong or right or factually correct or not. But mainstream media will try to put that person into a box, never mind where they're coming from or what they know. And it's, it's foolish to reduce our understanding of someone's life experiences to what they wear on a t-shirt, what they hold up on a poster board, what they paint on a sidewalk. People are so much more than just slogans. Yet we as fallen human beings, we rarely take the time to listen, to build trust, and to establish common ground and share our lived experiences. What if the church was different? What if it was known for a place of listening Nevertheless, Proverbs says to skip this consideration is actually foolishness. Proverbs 17, 27 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Self-restraint, not hot takes, should be our default, at least in our initial response. Without it, we can be people of understanding. This enables us to act and respond 
when and how it is appropriate. Uh, Proverbs 16.24 also talks about just how valuable the right response can be. The gracious words, it says, are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And Proverbs 25, verse 11, echoes this sentiment. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, a beautiful object. Pastor Timothy Keller, uh, one of my mentors uh, that I've never met, (laughs) tells us that uh, in the ancient world, finding something sweet to eat uh, was extremely difficult. They didn't have sugar at this time, at least refined like we do. And sweetness then had to be chanced upon. It was discovered, like finding a beehive or something like that. And whenever you found sweetness, it made your day. I'd, I'd imagine probably even make your week, especially if you had to eat bland food all the time. But the, sweet, uh, the sweetness itself is just like the words that we wait for, that we refine, and then we offer to someone after we've considered them, and that they too have felt like our response has considered where they're coming from. Christians, this is a picture of speech within the holy community of wisdom that is the church and the body of Christ. It is wise, it edifies, it seeks to learn, it doesn't belittle, it does not distance, it closes the distance. We can do so much better at times. And I'm sure on that, you would agree with me. If you don't agree, well then just go on social media for about three minutes later today and you'll see every shade of rage, of arrogance, and also fear. Such foolishness is not the way. Be it online or offline, inconsiderate words and actions harm our witness for Christ. Jesus poignantly says here in Matthew 10, 40, you can read this with me, Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Christ calls us to be receivable people. And that's worth repeating. Christ calls us to be receivable people. Now, these are people who live with Christ's own loving kindness on their sleeves. Others are drawn to them, or at least open to hearing from them, because they feel uh, received. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're not meant to live our lives so that we are received. That would be flattery, to live manipulatively or to become a man pleaser. To the contrary, we must live our lives so that we are receivable. This is that we aim to remove any obstacles in our life that put a barrier between me and another person and them seeing the Christ in me. We root out anything that could blur the image of Christ. I think here we can do so much better at refining our presentation of our own testimony of what God has done in our life and what we hope for others. Kindness truly matters and it directly affects our witness on the world. Perhaps you're listening and you're thinking, but Ethan, can't we be too kind sometimes? If I'm nothing but receivable, as you say, then people will walk all over me or or I'll never have the chance to share my core convictions or fight for them or defend for them. And to put it bluntly, this is just too naive. Well, if you're thinking this way of life does sound concerning, or at least you have concerns, 
then I invite you to embrace the second half of kindness, which is candor. Without candor, the considerate may be nice, but they're not kind. Allow me to explain. And on to our third point, be candid. Candor is defined in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as one unreserved, honest, or sincere expression, forthrightness. It's also two, freedom from prejudice or malice, fairness. Three, brightness, brilliance, or unstained purity. Or four, funny enough, kindliness. What you hear in these definitions, uh, candor is committed to the truth. It is fair. It is unmixed. It is honest. Yet still, it is not malicious. Candor does confront, and it will speak up, and it doesn't aim to hurt or to ruin. In essence, candor refines friends, and it's the vehicle for taking good friendships to great ones. Perhaps you've heard of Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Iron, I'm sure you know, is a hard substance. And before we figured out, technologically speaking, how to take diamonds and other minerals uh, to shape and sharpen metal, the method of choice was basically to take one forged piece of iron and rub it against another. So that way both would be fit for their intended use. This rubbing together was not haphazard or careless. It was directional, it was purposeful, and yes, it did produce heat at times. And this friction, though, had in mind the care for the iron. And so to continue the analogy that Proverbs is painting for us, care must be thoroughly present throughout the moment of correction. If not, then it's just damage. And to continue the metaphor, the heat of the friction isn't necessarily even the heat of the argument, but instead it's the point of contact where my life meets yours, and what I've experienced meets what you have experienced. This is a constructive heat, and one where one object or one person is not left withering under the other. Such is the right ray that Proverbs says to rebuke. Read with me Proverbs 15.1. It states, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. What soft answers have you given lately? Are you a friend, thinking about what kind of friend am I? Are you a friend that confronts with disarming gentleness? Or are you someone who forgets the grace and goes for the throat? Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 helps us kind of continue understanding how to rebuke well. Verse 5, it says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. And 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of the enemy. While candor calls us for open and honest correction, it knows that there is a time to say something, and there's also a time when it's far too late. Business author Kim Scott calls this specific problem ruinous empathy. Ruinous empathy. This occurs when a person holds out and saying something that would be beneficial at some point, but waits far too long out of being nice so that either one or both parties are disastrously harmed. She gives the example of keeping on and on and on an unskilled employee under her employment. She didn't take the time to correct them at all, 
and it became a terrible work environment. It compromised not just that person's job and the goals that was expected of that person, but the entire company. So much so that whenever they had to fire them, the relationship was irreconcilable. Such failure to act is often done in the name of being nice, but we don't want to rock the boat. But in reality, the end, um, such failure to act is not fair to anyone. It's not kind. This is how a nice action can actually be unkind. This couplet from Proverbs teaches us that friends who wound each other still also remain faithful. They check in. They circle back. They ask, how did you receive me in that conversation? I'm afraid it didn't go well. They continue to prove their best intentions for friends, and especially when they find their friend was wounded. Can you imagine, this is a weird thought, that if on Facebook, it built in this feature that says, you know, sends you a notification maybe eight hours after your Twitter spat or your fight that you get into conflict with someone on Facebook. The notification says, hi, we noticed that you got in a fight today with Bill. You might check on him. Perhaps say these words. Uh, I'm sure for some people, that actually might save a few relationships, uh, friendships and unfollows. Still kind of disingenuous, though, I guess, if Facebook's making you do it and automating it for you. Anyways, uh, the idea of having difficult conversations is scary for a lot of people. But it, if it is scary, take Proverbs 28, 23 in mind. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters his tongue. Proverbs 28, 23. So by now, I think we can actually put together the two halves of kindness. This is that the Christ-like friend outlined in Proverbs is both considerate, but also candid. This kind of friend is receivable, but they have a spine. They will speak up when there is danger or the relationship is threatened. Uh, But even in this response, there's demonstrated compassion and also calculated communication. Uh, To make this more concrete, I want to pull together an image and an example from the president of my undergrad at Biola University. His name is Barry Corey. He calls Christians to live both in the private and public circle with what he calls a firm center and soft edges. Maybe it helps here to think of a peach. With a firm center, we have both a strong sense of conviction, our identity in Christ, what God calls us to live for, and a willingness to never compromise on those truths. But also, with soft edges, we're receivable, we're considerate, we'll listen to even those that disagree with us. Jesus echoes this, he says, to be shrewd as serpents, here we have firm center, but also to be as gentle as doves, soft edges. Peter tells us to be always prepared to give a defense for our faith, and then also but do so with gentleness and respect. Firm center, soft edges. This paradigm for living outlines a balance of kindness that's reflected in the Proverbs. It helps us identify when and even where we go wrong at times, namely when we present hard edges or even have just a mushy center. Consider the first problem. I think you and I both can agree that there are times where we've engaged someone with both a hard center and hard edges. Probably didn't work out too well, did it? Maybe we're too dense to even realize it didn't work out. This sort of friend that Proverbs rebukes. It's also the the three friends that we find in the book of Job. 
The hard center talks more about what it's against than what it's for, and the firm gospel center is hidden in the hammering. I also think there are times here where we've engaged someone with a soft center, the second problem. In this case, we've risked not standing for anything because we're just a reflection with whoever's around us. We just go with the flow. And in doing so, they don't even really even know who we are, and maybe we don't either. We lack then the ability to live and explain our identity and our core convictions. And this is disastrous when it comes to the gospel. These two errors are not the balance that kindness calls for. One hammers and the other squishes. We don't get, always get it right, but when we do, we faithfully model the way of Jesus in a way that can open up for the possibility of peace. During my time at Biola, I was always impressed with how our president actually carried himself and modeled this in his own life. He was truly a kind man. And eventually his posture of a firm center and soft edges was actually put to the test before the public on a national level. In 2016, the state of California presented two bills which sought to tighten restrictions on free speech in schools that embraced a traditional sexual ethic. Many Christian universities feared that if these bills were passed, they would have to choose between their faithfulness in communicating Christian doctrine or they would lose their state funding, which would certainly mean that most of these private Christian universities would just disappear overnight and have to shut their doors. As you can imagine, when these bills were announced, intense debate and protesting ensued. And as we've seen time and time again, sides unfolded in our country, and they rose with a tension of a militant fever pitch, even on both sides. This was until Barry Corey, the president, again, extended an olive branch to one of the key authors of the opposing bill, Evan Lowe. Over the course of several months, they were able to meet with each other regularly. One received a tour of Biola's campus, another a tour of the Congressional State Halls of California. Several dinners later, perhaps lots of coffee, the two came to a better understanding. The goal was not to uh, totally agree, and this didn't happen. And it wasn't just a compromise on core values. And again, this didn't happen. It was to collaborate and find what good and common good and just good can be done. The result thus far has been outstanding. Christian universities in California are still open today. They've retained their funding and their constitutional free speech. And some of these key opposing lawmakers came to understand that the desire of religious universities to remain faithful to their convictions did have noble intentions. And they carved out certain um, exemptions, religious exemptions, that secured both ends of the common good. In this instance, God used someone with a firm center, definitely committed to Jesus, but also soft edges to reach out in kindness. And this person won a victory for countless numbers by engaging someone who, as Evan Lowe says, did not see eye to eye in his Washington Post article about finding an unlikely friend. Embodied in this work of kindness is the fulfillment of Proverbs 16:7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he even makes his enemies peace, uh, be at peace with him. Through kindness, the church has at least an opportunity to bring real peace 
into our broken world. Kindness doesn't require for us to compromise our biblical values. And at the same time, we do not have to crusade at the expense of our enemies. Kindness trusts that the Lord is with us and fights with us and even helps us love our enemies along the way. For just us here in this room right now, I want us to reflect on maybe even just this past year, 2020. I honestly hope this is the last sermon that I have to bring up a a very difficult, ugly year. Maybe it's not ugly. Maybe it is. But with it now behind us, I think we could almost call it the year of lost friendships. The year I never, uh, excuse me, the year I never spoke with that person again. With um, too quickly, I think each of us would admit we took disagreements and turned them into witch hunts. We saw fissures erupt and unfold around topics of race, uh, police, COVID, political candidates. I mean, our list can go on. It seemed like something was in the news every week and everybody disagreed about it. And this spirit of division, even for us on a local level, is still wreaking havoc. And this itself, Satan loves. I... uh, even now, I think, too, we continue to further this division through gossip, through, through hot takes, um, and it's chased potential friends away, and friends that we could actually have the potential of sharing common ground with, uh, even common ground in the gospel. Grace Church, ahead of us lay even more incendiary conversations. There will be something on the news next week, I can guarantee you. And we will have to face the decision of how are we going to be kind to someone that doesn't see eye to eye. Uh, We'll have to be kind to someone who doesn't see eye to eye now already with things that are going on with the school board or the Delta variant or CRT or unemployment or whatever the topic. I, along with you, want us to commit to being considerate and being candid in disagreement, but also commit to being constant. If there is a fight... uh, anything to fight for in this room, then it's to fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to fight for our unity. In our unity, we cannot be united if we cannot be friends. Minutes from now, we'll close. We'll sing together, and then our unity will be put to the test. We'll make decisions that impact not just ourselves this week, but also for others in our lives. And if Proverbs has shown anything, we can certainly make foolish choices. Some here today need wise friends. I think all of us can use more. And like my trip in the mountains, uh, sometimes I simply come to the point where the backup plan of my backup plan has fallen through, and I just need all the help I can get. And perhaps you too realize that. If you feel like you're in a similar place, without hiking boots on a trail in the mountains, or maybe you're just feeling overwhelmed with how things are in the world and how turbulent life has become amongst your friends and family, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. God has graced us with not just his book, which contains the Proverbs of wisdom, but also his son who gave us an example to live life wisely. And also Jesus invites us to take on his yoke which is teaching, but also he calls it, it is, um, it is light and easy. Jesus invites us to walk life with him, the ultimate wise person. And as our Proverbs that we first read today 
He who walks with the wise becomes wise. Walk with Jesus. And also, walk with the church. The church itself, as it chooses wisdom and lives in the Spirit, will model wisdom for each other. Examples of wisdom will pop up here and there and not only inspire, but also inform us to live in a way that is meaningful, it is skilled, and it is beautiful. The church can truly make the choice every day to be a place of flourishing where friends help and friends heal, wisdom abounds. Then we'll look back and say that wise friends make the difference. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that is spoken this morning. I pray that anything that I've said uh, that is not of you may fall away from memory, but anything, Lord, that does resound with the gospel truth, may it stick in our heart and in our life, and may it become something that we are known for. May the way of wisdom invite us for that easy yoke that Jesus offers May the way of wisdom also help us seek reconciliation for those that that need reconciliation. And may following the way of Jesus simply enjoy the good things in life that you have to offer. Help us, Lord, to find and to make and to maintain good friends. In your name I pray. Amen.